0: To give you the opportunity to use First John 1, 9 if necessary, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Holy Spirit in order to be prepared to take in the Word, to understand it, that it may have uh, spiritual value for our growth and advance in the spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, to learn more about you, to learn more about how you have worked in history, to come to a greater understanding that your work in history follows a plan and a purpose, that the things which are taking place even today are prophesied in the Old Testament. These patterns are laid down as far back as the early chapters of Genesis. And Father, as we continue our study in this section of Genesis, we pray that we might be uh, impressed with the details that are here and how accurate Your Word truly is. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Once again, let's look at our general overview of uh, the book of Genesis. If you can remember two sections in Genesis, you can remember the whole book. There's 50 chapters in Genesis. The first 11 chapters form the prologue to the book. And that is the made up of four key events. And each of those events are important for understanding certain specific doctrines. The second section of the book, which covers chapter 12 through chapter 50, focuses on four people. The four events are the creation in the creation, we learn about God. We see His power. We see His magnificence. We understand something about who man is because He creates man in His image and likeness. So we come to understand that if you want to know who man is, and that is, will affect anything in human relationships, if you want to come to any kind of an understanding of who, who human beings are then we must start with the fact that they're in the image and likeness of god if you start from a different starting point if you start from an evolutionary starting point then your understanding of what makes a person a person what makes a human being a human being is not going to be the same you have two different two completely different uh, understandings of the human race so if you're operating on a on an uh, evolutionary or Darwinian framework where man is just the product of time plus chance and the only thing that exists in the universe is ultimately material things, then that's all you have is a machine. Human beings are nothing more than a machine. They're nothing more than another material part of the cog that makes up the universe. And there is nothing beyond the universe. It's just one big physical machine. So the creation tells us about who God is, who man is, and then we come to the fall. This, again, helps us to understand man's condition. It's the only way that we can understand and have a significant comprehension of the problem of evil. This is some an objection that you will often find from unbelievers. We've discussed. Covered this many times. You'll be talking to someone, and especially after a horrendous event, such as 9 11, or perhaps in light of a famine, or war, or horrible things that have happened, someone who's the victim of extremely violent criminal actions. And they'll say, Well, how can a loving God let this happen? How can a loving God allow all of these people to die? Well, how do you explain evil in the universe? And so they act like you as a Christian have some major problem because you believe in a loving God and these horrible things happen. And as we've studied, the best way to handle it is to turn it around to them and say, well, how can you explain evil in the light of your understanding of the universe? Mr. Evolutionist, you know, Dr. Biologist, how do you explain it? If all you have is a machine, there can't be good or evil, so you don't even have the right to make the question or ask the question, how do you explain evil? Because if all you have is a machine, there's no good, there's no evil, things just are. You have no basis for making any kind of value judgments whatsoever because all you've got is a machine, and any value judgments are simply opinions developed by people. People who live in the machine for the sake of their own personal convenience, and this works out logically in what ends up in in what's now postmodernism, which really isn't that new. The idea that that while well, every culture develops its own values of right and wrong, and what right does a Western European culture have to say that an African culture has wrong values, or that an Islamic culture has wrong values? Who's to say that it's wrong? To, or violent or vicious to capture someone and torture them. As soon as you you think that's wrong, well, where do you get that value? You think it's wrong to capture someone and behead them and show the video all over the world? Well, what gives you that value? Where does that come from? Who has the right to, who determines these universal or transcendental values? If you don't have a God who is personal and who is righteous, then you end up with nothing more than than some a creature within the framework of creation just making up or generating his own standards, which can change next week. So the fall explains why there is evil in the universe, why things fall apart, why there's suffering, why there's uh, war, why things don't work, why there's criminality. We understand that the basic nature of man is flawed because of his sin nature. He is... What The theological term was total depravity. Man is totally depraved. He is uh, flawed at his very core. He is not basically good. He is basically evil because of arrogance. And arrogance always ends up producing catastrophe. Then we have the flood. Sign of judgment on fallen man. So this is the first time we're introduced into the concept of judgment in relation to salvation. And it's the first time we really get introduced to the idea of exclusivity in Scripture. Now this is something, once again, that just drives most unbelievers just nuts. I mean, you'll hear the objection. How in the world can you, as a Christian... Be so flippin' arrogant as to think your way's the only way, and that everybody else is wrong, and everybody else is going to go to hell except you, and they want to immediately put the Christian in this defensive position of arguing that uh, that everybody is wrong. Well, once again, it comes back to values. See, here's somebody who just got through saying that that every culture has equal validity. Oh, but you can't say that as a Christian. You can't have any validity because you just said that everybody else is wrong. So that's that's a value uh, that you can't hold. Well, the flood, God said there's one condition for deliverance from this judgment, and that's to get in the ark. And there's only one way in the ark, and that's through the door. And this is a picture of salvation where Jesus says later, I am the way the truth and the life, no man can come to the Father except by me. So Jesus makes this what appears to be on the surface extremely arrogant statement about himself that nobody, no matter how good you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter what things you do, nobody can come to God except through Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that has led to what is considered one of the I think one of the great arguments of uh, an apologetics, it's called the Lord liar or lunatic argument. And this is basically the position that Jesus Christ was either telling the truth when He said, I'm the only way to God, or He wasn't. He was either telling the truth when He said, I and the Father are one, or He wasn't. He's either telling the truth or He's telling a lie, one or the other. There's no way around it. You can't back off and say, well, Jesus was a great teacher a moral innovator, that he was he, he, all of the different human opinions that are set forth uh, by the human viewpoint anti-Christian crowd. You sit in a university classroom and some professors uh, knocking Christianity. You ask the question, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Well, who, who do you, Mr. Professor, Dr. Historian, who do you think is Jesus Christ is? And they'll usually say something that is rather uh, rather soft, non-confrontational. He was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was a religious leader, something like that. You'll n- probably never have one come back and say, well, he was an evil, wicked, deceptive individual. But either Jesus is telling the truth or he's not. And now if he's not telling the truth, if he's telling a lie then he either believes what he is saying, in which case he is a lunatic because he's saying that he's God. And any human being who says that he's God is borderline psychotic, needs to spend some time getting some good medication. But if he doesn't believe what he's saying, then he is conscientiously lying, in which case he's a great deceiver. So Jesus made these tremendous claims that I am the only way. Now, if He is making that claim, and He is the only way to God, and that is the truth, then that means that everything else that Jesus says falls in line. He affirmed the reality of the creation event. He believed in the literal historicity of Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. We saw that in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus is... Asked about divorce. He quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 with equal authority as if they're from the same document. Of course, he's not familiar with modern uh, liberal Christian scholarship. It says that Genesis 1 was written by uh, a man who preferred the name Yahweh, the J writer. And Genesis 2 was written by the uh, Elohim writer, and they wrote these two or three hundred years apart, and it was somebody else that put them together. Jesus recognizes that both are from the hand of God, from the hand of Moses, uh, under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. So uh, everything that Jesus affirms is true, and he affirms the entire Old Testament. So you can't throw out the Old Testament. You can't say, well, that was just their idea of what was uh, going on at that time. This just expresses their their mythological views of creation just like all the other ancient Near Eastern people because Jesus comes along and, and completely validates and affirms everything about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So that means that if he doesn't understand, if he's misinterpreted, then he's deceived, he can't be God, and once again you have a major problem with the person of Jesus Christ. He's either telling the truth or he's lying, one or the other. And so we have to go back to that and see the flood teaches that there is only one way. This is how God operates in history. There is only one way, and that's God's way. And God is more than gracious in giving the human race Revelation, 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 time, 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 evidence, evidence, evidence in order to demonstrate the validity of his statements. It doesn't just plop down and come up one day and say, this is it, you got one choice, it's over with. There's time again and again and again. And then the fourth event in the beginning is the Tower of Babel where God again has to judge man because of his failure to obey him. This leads to the scattering of the people into the various tribal groups as a result of their linguistic confusion. So once God confuses the language, then the people are forced to scatter, to gather together in their individual linguistic groups, and then this leads to a tribal diversity. All of this is simply to set the stage for what happens in the second part of Genesis. When we come to the four people, we look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These are the four key figures in the latter part of Genesis, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. Now, if you think about the book's got 50 chapters and 11 of them relate to the first four events, then what does God really want us to pay attention to? It's the, the, the events surrounding the four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, because this is going to form the foundation for the rest of Genesis. So what happens in Genesis 11, as we've seen, is we make we, we see it's a transition from the flood to the call of Abram, which occurs in Genesis 12:1, or Avram. Now, why does God have to call out Avram? This is where we're headed. And this, again, develops this theme of exclusivity, that God is now going to start working with one individual, He's going to work through one people group. He's only going to send prophets to the Jews. He's only going to reveal Scripture to the Jews. Only the Jews are going to record Scripture. Only the Jews are going to be custodians of Scripture. And it is through the Jews that God is going to send, send the Savior. So he, he overlooks and ignores the rest of humanity and focuses on one individual. And we will have to address that question of why is it that God focuses on one person? Well, this is set up for us in the text in Genesis 10 and 11. This section, as we've seen, is called the Table of Nations. And it's usually the section that most people skip over when they read their Bible because they just don't understand why you need to know all this stuff and you have all these begats and so-and-so begats so-and-so and so begat so and so and so and so is the father of so-and-so and who were these people and why is this relevant and we have spent four or five weeks discussing why this is relevant Noah has three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth at the end of Genesis chapter 9 there is the blessing and the cursing from noah on these three sons because under divine inspiration he sees that their character traits in a broad general sense map out the general trends in human history and their progenitors shem will be the father of those who have an orientation to god blessed be the god the lord god of shem Look, verse uh, genesis 9:26 Ham is neither blessed nor cursed, but his descendant Canaan is cursed because of his sexual perversion, which is uh, demonstrated uh, by, the way, by, his, by Ham's disrespect for his father. When Noah got drunk and was running around his tent uh, unclothed and passed out, uh, Ham came out and joked about it with his brothers, and they showed respect. So that... Propensity in Ham was something that Noah saw would play itself out in the sexual perversion of the Canaanites. And of course, for the Jews who were reading this, that was beginning to show them why God had to judge the Canaanites and why it was such a harsh judgment to remove them uh, from human history. And then we studied Japheth and the Japh- Japheth descendants. Japheth is the father of two broad groups, the Indo-Europeans, the Aryans, and the Europeans, the group that heads off into Persia, northern India, and then another branch goes into Europe. And we traced out how all of these names uh, in the first five, five verses are have, have cognates that are still in use today describing the place names in, in Western Europe uh, of the descendants, so they 're very ancient names, going back to uh, Japheth. We studied him that there are that his most uh, notable descendant was Nimrod, who was a, known for being a great hunter on the earth now that just isn 't because he could go out and hunt deer but because there were still dinosaurs and great creatures that came off the the ark, and he was able to kill them. not only that, but he exhibited his prowess. And power over human beings. He established the cities of, of Babel and Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. This is a foundation of the kingdom of Babylon. And this becomes the foundation for the Tower of Babel, which we covered the last couple of weeks in Genesis chapter, chapter 11. So that is Nimrod. Now we come, we, we skipped the last part of Genesis 10, starting in verse 21 which covers the descendants of Shem. We skipped that. We went to the uh episode with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11:1 through 9. And tonight what I want to do is is merge together the genealogy given in Genesis 10:21 to 32, the descendants of Shem given there and the descendants that are specifically delineated in 11:10 down through verse 26, because in verse 26 we end with the father of Avram. Now, Terah lived 70 years and begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is Abram, so the father of the Jews. And so that ends this book. Actually, Genesis 11:10 through 26 is one section. That's one Toledot. Remember I said there were ten Toledotes in Genesis, this is the literary structure of Genesis. These are the records of the. These are the. This is what happened to the universe that God made. This is the. the what happened to the descendants of Adam? This is what happened to the descendants of Noah, and here we have this is the genealogy, verse ten uh, or eleven, ten. This is the genealogy of Shem. Literally, this is what happened to the descendants of Shem, and that's a very short Toledote. It's not the shortest, but it's very short. It's only 17 verses, and then we start the next Toledot in verse 27, which is the Toledot of Terah. It's not the Toledot of Avram, who becomes Abraham. It's the Toledot of Terah, and this covers all the way down until we get to Isaac. So let's go back to verse 21, just summarize this. What we have in the descendants of Shem there are five sons that are listed in verse 21. Or verse 22, the sons of Shem are Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. These are the five sons, but only two of them are going to uh, be, be uh, isolated in terms of their descendants. So we don't know a whole lot about these, uh, the, all of these five men and where they went. Now, one thing that we'll note as we go through the genealogy is there's some repetition. There are some names in the Shem line that we also find in the Japheth line or in the Ham line. And some people have looked at this and thought that, well, if you run into the same name, it must be the same person. But That's not true. I mean, think about most of your families. If you look at my family, when we got together, sometimes it was pretty confusing because on my mother's side, because there were five women named Betty. Not, they weren't all born in the family, but it seemed like everybody wanted to marry a Betty. So there were like four or five Betty Schliers, and that got a little confusing. But there's, there's a Bob, a, two Bobbies and two Robbies. There's about six Tommies. So, That's probably true of most families. You see in various generations a repetition of different names. You'll have somebody have a son, name it after their uncle, and so you have names that pass on from generation to generation. And so this is the same kind of thing that you have in these genealogies. Now the firstborn of Shem is Elam. Elam's the firstborn, and there is a region or country that is named after him, and this is the territory of Elam, which lies to the east of southern Mesopotamia. So if you think about uh, a map, let me see, I think I put a map in here. Yeah, there's our map. If we look at the map, we see that Elam is in this territory here. Now, this is... This area here is where you see the two rivers. That's modern Iraq. This area moving over here south of the Caspian Sea is modern Persia. So in the southern, or modern Iran, so the southern part is where the descendants of Elam were, uh, were isolated. Now what's interesting is that for years, liberal Protestant scholars, and by liberal Protestant scholars, I mean the, the Protestant the development of Protestant liberal theology in the mid-19th century, which rejected the historical veracity of the Bible. They didn't believe the Bible was true. This is just legend. And for years they taught that that this this had to be false because here you have the Elamites as being portrayed as Shemites, descendants of Shem. Yet because of the limited archaeological discoveries of the uh, 19th century, the only thing they had discovered at that point was that the descendants there were probably Hamitic, So that caused them to question the veracity of Scripture. However, by the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, archaeologists uncovered further layers and discovered that the oldest inhabitants of this area were a completely different racial stock than the later inhabitants. And the earliest inhabitants were Shemites. In fact, there's a very a couple of well known turn of the century, that's early twentieth century, Old Testament scholars, one by the name of S. R. Driver and another by the name of E. A. Spicer. Neither one of them believed in the historicity of the early chapters of Genesis. Yet both of them were forced to admit that this was accurate, that the early descendants, I mean the early inhabitants of Elam were uh, Shemitic. In fact, archaeologist William Foxwell Albright, who was uh, the dean of the School of Archaeology at Johns Hopkins University, uh, did not believe the historicity of the Bible at all. By the time he died, he certainly didn't become a conservative by any means, but he had spent a lifetime in archaeology and and was at the time of his death was probably the most well-known, most famous biblical archaeologist. And he uh, noted that the Table of Nations was one of the most accurate and remarkable documents of ancient history. No flaws, no errors, no mistakes. Now, what we see from from uh, archaeology, confirms what the Bible says, and that is that in the northern area of what is modern Ar- Iraq and Persia, you had some fair-skinned descendants. Those would be Japhethites. In the center area, following Nimrod, and from what we learn about Ham, you see uh, the descendants of Ham. And in the southern part, you see These Shemitic descendants. What happens under Nimrod is he becomes a conqueror. He's a, he's pictured as a military conqueror and that's why he enters into the, eventually into the uh, pantheon of Babylon under the name Marduk, taking the MRD consonants from Nimrod. We've seen that already. Uh, His name survives as Marduk and later on as uh, the name Merodach Baladan that MRD root is used and is applied by the kings in Babylon force for centuries and he establishes the kingdom of Babylon as he conquers both the, the descendants of Japheth remember Ararat is just up here on the southwest or southeast shore of the black sea and as the descendants of noah and his three sons moved out the uh, some of the descendants of Japheth moved up to the north, into the area north of the Black Sea. The descendants of Gomer, others moved into uh, what is modern Turkey. Descendants of Ham headed south. Uh, descendants of Shem also headed south and southeast. So, but you so you see this picture where the um, the Hamites, as the Sumerians. And later Babylonians conquer the Shemitic Elamites in the south and the Japhethites in the north. Now Shem had these five sons. Let's go back to our earlier chart. Shem has these five sons. The first ones we learn about are from Aram. And he has four sons: Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Now, once again, we don't have much said about them. This genealogy, though, is confirmed in First Chronicles one seventeen. The same same names. There's there's no change. Uh, of these, we what well, little we know in the scripture, Uz appears. The name appears again as a nephew of Abraham through his brother Nahor and Milcah, and that's noted in Genesis 22:21. Another Uz shows up a couple of generations later as a descendant of Esau. But these are several generations later, in fact, several centuries later, and so they can't be confused with this particular Uz. This Uz seems to be one who gave his name to a particular territory, and this is where... Job lived. Job was from the land of Uz. And this territory would be in the area of Jordan or uh, Iraq, down to Saudi Arabia, that general area today. We don't know precisely where it was, but according to references in Jeremiah twenty-five twenty and Lamentations 4, 21, it would be to the southeast of Israel. We know nothing about the other sons, but... From what we see, because they are descendants of Aram, they are probably the forerunners of the various tribes that later made up the Arameans, who were a Semitic people who were in the area of Syria. Then we have the descendants of our Arpachshad Our Pakshad gave birth to Shelah. We're looking at verse, uh, let's look at verse 24. Our Faksad begat Salah or Shelah. And Sheila begot Eber, so we have the line developing to Abraham. Sheila, Eber, and then Eber has two sons, Peleg and Joktan. Joktan has 13 sons that are listed between verses 26 and 30, and these all settle down in the uh, area now known as Saudi Arabia. But before we get there, We've got two major problems to discuss in relationship to this genealogy. The first one, the first problem has to do with a gap. Now, this is important because nearly every one of you has heard the argument that there are gaps in the genealogies. So if you take the numbers that are given, as we'll see in Genesis um, 11, that there are precise numbers given. In fact, just turn the page to chapter 11, verse 11. We're told that Shem was a hundred years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. And after he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived five hundred years. So how old was Shem when he died? Come on. Six hundred years. Okay. Arphaxad lived thirty-five years and begot Selah. So Selah was born when... This is a real math night for you. Selah was born... Or Sheila, as it's in other translations, was born when Shem was how old? 135. Now, can, because of those numbers, can you insert multiple generations in there? No, you can't, because when 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 our Faxad is 35 years old, Sheila's born. Even if Sheila's his grandson, which would be remarkable, but could happen. Even if Sheila's his grandson, our fact said is still 35 years old. You see, that makes it an unbreakable formula. He, the Bible is establishing a strict chronology. There are no gaps there. Now, the problem that, of course, this develops is that if you add up all the numbers, you end up with a creation somewhere between 4000 and 4500 BC. And, of course, this flies in the face of various allegations from archaeology, carbon-14 dating, and other types of dating. And if you want the analysis on that, go back to to the study we did back in Genesis 1 on the, the flaws in the dating mechanisms of modern science. They are all flawed. They are, they are all based on certain presuppositions, and if those assumptions are false then everything in the dating mechanism falls apart. And as I pointed out at that time, the basic presupposition is known as uniformitarianism. Long word. Let me write it up on the screen for you. Uniformitarianism. U-N-I-F-O-R-M-I-T-A-R-I-A-N-I-S-M. And the idea as a root here is uniform, that there is a uniform decay rate, whether you're talking about potassium argon or you're talking about carbon-14 or whatever the chemical is that you're using, uh, uh, the breakdown of the half-life of uranium, whatever it is, that this is a uniform rate all the way through history that it doesn't change. So, therefore, if you can measure this decay rate, at this particular time, you can extrapolate back and find a date. But if you have a major catastrophe such as the Bible describes the flood to be that would radically change and affect all of these various decay rates because it, it changes the whole structure of of uh, of the universe, then that throws off your whole dating scheme. You can't date back. And in fact, uniformitarianism has come under tremendous attack even within the evolutionary schools because they realized that things, uh, catastrophes that they now uh, recognize, such as Mount St. Helens, and we saw a video on that a few months ago, that uh, Mount St. Helens laid down in just a few days what would have appeared to have taken thousands and thousands of years according to, to uniformitarian presuppositions. So uh, uniformitarianism is being challenged in, within the school of geology, within, within modern geology, but they don't want to give it up. So they uh, postulate various catastrophes uh, here and there that happened, and, and of course, once again, you, you don't have any real validation for that. So the idea is well if we're going to make the bible fit these old time scales if we're going to come up with a with an earth that's at least 10,000 years old or 15,000 or 20,000 we've got to find that time somewhere so let's go to the genealogies cuz these gene- maybe there's a gap there and we've got we we can insert large frames of time into those gaps Well this is the place where everyone goes to to prove their gaps in the genealogies. Now, one other thing we ought to note is there are different kinds of genealogies in the Scripture. If you hold your Bible here and just turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, I'll show you a different kind of genealogy. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we read in verse 2, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. See, the purpose of the genealogy is to prove Jesus is who he claimed to be. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah and Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon and so on. You see any numbers? No, see, in this kind of a genealogy, there will skip generations, and there are gaps in these genealogies because it's not trying to show every single generation. It is trying to establish the fact that there is a straight linkage between Jesus Christ all the way back through David to Abraham. But there's no numbers there. Once you insert numbers where X lived 35 years and begot Y, and then he lived another 600 years and died, and then Y lived 25 years and begot Z, and then lived another 250 years. As soon as you put numbers in there, you, you close up the genealogy. Now, the problem that we have with Genesis, Genesis uh, 11 is that there is the insertion of another person between Arpaxad and Canaan, in Luke 3:36. So hold your place there. You went to Matthew. Now flip on over one more book to Luke. And look at Luke 3:36. Luke 3:36 says this. Uh, let's try verse 35. The son of Serug. It's, it's going backwards in the genealogy. He was the son of Serug, who was the son of Reu, who was the son of Peleg, who was the son of Eber, who was the son of Shelah, who was the son of Canaan, who was the son of Arphaxad. Now, we picked up somebody in there, didn't we? See, in Genesis 11, it says that Shem, then Arphaxad, and then Shelah. No, Canaan. Where does this Canaan person come from? And uh, what well, you'll find often people say, well, see, the New Testament is more accurate than the Old Testament. So, see, here's, an, here's a gap in the genealogy. It's the only example of a gap. If, if, it's, if it's accurate, it's the only example of a gap. And let me tell you, folks, one gap doesn't get you 50,000 years. One gap might get you 50 or 100 years, but one gap doesn't get you the kind of numbers they think they're going to get. But I don't think there's a gap there. Let's look at what happens. On the the overhead, you can't read that. You can probably see a little bit of it. I've highlighted the last word of the third line. Which is the article in the, in the Greek too, T-O-U. These are all uppercase letters. This is how an uppercase uncial would look like. That was an early type of Greek manuscript. They, there's no space between words. Every letter is written in uppercase. And you see that you have the word to Canaan. So if you the, the scribe is writing across a scroll, and he is writing on that, those top lines and he comes along and his eye happens to skip a couple of lines, and we've all done that when we're copying something, then what would happen is he would pick up that word to Canaan and he would copy it in the wrong place. And you see that in the second example. instead of uh, uh, Because there is a mention of Canaan, if you look down to verse 36, it goes on to say the son, I mean, down to verse um, 37. The son of Methuselah, who is the son of Enoch, who is the son of Jared, who is the son of Mahalalel, who is the son of Canaan. So you do have a Canaan in the genealogy before the flood. So what it appears to have taken place in Luke 3.36 is that somewhere in the probably the Fourth or fifth century A.D., fairly early on, some scribe inadvertently copied the name twice. And so we picked up Canaan in the midst of that in that um, verse. Now, how can we demonstrate that? See, this isn't just my opinion. You can't just say, oh, well, maybe he did that. Let's see if there is any kind of confirming evidence for this. Um, I'm going to go ahead and skip that. Let's see if there's any confirming, confirming evidence. In, um, we have a chart here. I have a chart here. Where'd it go? Here it is. This is a chart comparing the patriarchs on the left-hand side of the screen. The Hebrew text is in the second column that lists the, the age, um, where they were uh, uh, of their father, or the age when they were born. And for Shem, that's two years after the flood. The Septuagint number is then listed, and then the number in Josephus. Now, Josephus was either using the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was translated from Hebrew into Greek between 250 and 150 B.C., about 250 years before Christ. The Jews that were living outside the land in Egypt had forgotten how to read Hebrew. So... Uh, Ptolemy uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus, I believe, uh, ordered that the uh, Septuagint, or uh, that the Old Testament, should be translated into uh, into Greek, and this occurred between 250 BC and about uh, 150 BC. So Josephus would have been using the Septuagint or something based on the Septuagint, and this is substantiated. The Hebrew text, known as the Masoretic text, gives the age of which our Arphaxad became a father at 35. But notice, the Septuagint says it was 135. Josephus says it was 135. Uh, Canaan, of course, isn't mentioned by either the Masoretic text, and he's not mentioned by Josephus. That's important. Sheila was 30 years old according to the Masoretic text, 130 according to the Septuagint, and 130 by Josephus. See, the Septuagint adds 100 to all the, all the numbers. So that was clearly a, some kind of scribal error. Josephus follows the Septuagint in that mistake. You see, when, when the Septuagint says that Sheila was 130 years old, Josephus says he was 130. But the Masoretic text said he's 30. You understand the point? Josephus, because he, he has the same error in terms of the numbers that the septuagint has, clearly was using either the septuagint or a septuagint-based document for coming up with his genealogy. But he left out Canaan. So that tells us that in the first century, that is at the time of Christ, the, the earliest are, the, the records from the Old Testament did not have Canaan in there. There's no record of that. We know that Canaan is not found in the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. The, that name is not found in First Chronicles one eighteen, which is a parallel genealogy. It wasn't found in any of the ancient versions that were translated directly from the Hebrew. It wasn't found in the Samaritan Pentateuch. It wasn't found in the Aramaic. It wasn't found in the Syriac Targums or in the Vulgate. See, Jerome refused to use the Septuagint as a source for translating the Vulgate. Augustine tried to uh, insist that he use the Septuagint, but Jerome said it's too corrupt. It's not an accurate translation. I'm not going to use it. So... This doesn't slip into the, uh, the Vulgate doesn't have that there either. So what the, what's the point I'm making? The point I'm making is at the end of the first century, around 70, 80 A.D., Josephus is using a septuagint or something based on the septuagint. doesn't mention this person Canaan. Not only that, but about 100 years later, between 200 and 250 A.D., an early church father by the name of Julius Africanus produced a chronology of the Bible. And he did not include Canaan in his list, in his genealogy. Now what's interesting is just like Josephus, the numbers that he had match the numbers in the Septuagint. So he does the same thing that Josephus does. He has the same numbers 135 years instead of 35 years, 150 years instead of 50 years, 130 years instead of 30 years. So he's obviously using a septuagint as late as 220 A.D. that doesn't have Canaan in it. So that tells us that this insertion of this name Canaan into the septuagint doesn't occur until at least 250 A.D., so this is a kind of detailed work you have to dig out in order to demonstrate this stuff. So somebody comes along and says, well, I see there's a mistake in the Bible. Well, that's because you didn't do your homework. But you do your homework, there's no mistake. There was a mistake in the transmission and the copy of the text, and so you have to go back and trace out all the, all the, um, uh, genealogy of the manuscripts. Not the genealogy in the te- manuscript, but the genealogy of the What manuscript was a copy of what manuscript? You trace this out and scholars build various uh, trees tracing all of this stuff, the kind of stuff that would drive me nuts. But that's what you do because it, you have to t- trace this out to see if this is true. So it's obvious that Canaan is an insertion. And it's a textual problem. It's not in some of the oldest New Testament manuscripts, as a matter of fact. So that insertion of Canaan in uh, Luke 3.23 is a textual error. It shouldn't be there. It was a result of a copyist error that entered into the history of the transmission of the text along the way. So now we're back to our original point. that is, there's no gaps in the genealogy. So you, you're, once again, you're locked in to follow the numbers. The second thing that we have to look at when we study this uh, genealogy is what does it mean when it says that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg? The earth was divided in the days of Peleg. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis 10, notice there's two diversions. You have all, all this... So-and-so became the father, so-and-so became the father, so-and-so. There's two interruptions. One is to tell us about Nimrod, and the other is to tell us about Peleg. And in verse 25 it says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. What does that mean, the earth was divided? Well, let's look at the name Peleg. There was a group in northern Greece, or in what is known as Thrace, that were known as the Pulaskians. Now, as you, we've studied this before in relationship to language, that there are certain ways in which you define that somebody is from a certain area. I don't know what you call them if you're a Connecticut. You're a Connecticutter? Is that the right word? I've been here six years. I don't know what you are. If you're from Texas, you're a Texan. Used to be a Texican. Before that, you were a Texian. Now, you see, we have these different suffixes we add to words. If you're from California, you're Californian. If, if you're from uh, Florida, you're Floridian. If you're from uh, New York, you need to move. I don't... There's all kinds of different suffixes that have been developed in, in history, and some of these are, you have the suffix I-C-U-S. Or I see, for example, you have Germanicus, uh, you have the uh, ending uh, S-C-A-N-S, S-C-A-N-S as in the word Etruscans. So these are the people who are the descendants of someone who's probably named Etrus or something similar to that. This ending is related etymologically to the English word Skyon, the descendants of somebody. Which is interestingly related to the Greek word, the Greek ending skoi. So you come along and you have the descendants of Peleg are called the Pelegskoi, which becomes the Pelaskians. So these people were known as traders, Uh, they had ships, they sailed the Mediterranean, they were a seafaring people, they were also uh, pirates. And they operated in the area the north of Greece, between two rivers. And one of these rivers was called the Hebrus River. Now, isn't that interesting? Who's Peleg's father? Eber. Now, the root of Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. Okay, it goes back to the descendants of Eber. But the Hebrus River is where the Pelagskoi lives. So that's just an interesting uh, note of, that, that would, would confirm that areas where his descendants ended up eventually they were pus, pushed further south by the Thracians and they merged in with the Greek people. Now, in the concept of being divided, the first theory, which was proposed interestingly enough in 1859, just before the American War between the states, that was a long time before any scientists ever came up with a continental drift theory. We had a Mike had brought up a chart here a while back that was a picture of the the, the bottoms of the, of the seas, and as you looked at the continents, North American, South American relationship to to the western shore of Africa and and Western Europe, you could see how they might might have fit together, and that there was this continental drift. So some 50 or more years before science, science, our geologists came up with the continental drift theory. A biblical scholar. Came up with the theory that perhaps that's what this meant. Is that th- this was uh, he, a scholar by the name of Fabry wrote a book called The Origin of Heathenism and related this to the split of the continents. Now, this, th- this theory, a lot of creationists thought this might be possible for a while, but the geologic upheaval would be too great. It would just be enormous. We had the, all the upheaval of the flood. This would have been several hundred years later, so it would have been just too great. So it, it doesn't seem like this would have been, uh, the, the continental split would have occurred at this time. It probably occurred at the flood. That's when you have your geologic uh, events. The second idea, which many people have thought, is that this would describe a division of national boundaries by Noah. Uh, They propose that that Noah divided up the earth among various territories designating his various sons and grandsons. But there's no real support for that. What we do have, let me get to a genealogy here. What we do have is the fact that that, uh, Peleg lived roughly his life and the life of Nimrod overlap. Peleg was about uh, 125 to 150 years old when the Tower of Babel incident occurred. So this reference to a division in the time of Peleg is a reference to the division of languages. So this happens during, during his life. Now, if we look at this, I'm going to skip ahead through these slides. If we look at this particular overhead, I have a timeline here for each of the uh, patriarchs. Peleg is this red bar here. And Peleg lived from roughly, let me see, it's roughly 2397 B.C. to 2158. Now, if you look at the chart, these numbers down here are the years after the creation, 1,600 years after the creation and approximately 1656 was when the flood occurred, 1,656 years after the creation is when uh, the flood occurred. So then you have 1,600 years after the creation, 1,700 years, 1,800 years, uh, 1,900 years. So that's what these numbers uh, refer to. But if you uh, reverse things, then the, uh, then uh, Peleg's dates would have been from approximately 2397 A.D. to 2158. So this is his red line here. Notice he would have overlapped the birth of Avram, Abram. So Peleg lives a long time. He lives a couple hundred years. He's the fourth generation from Shem and would have been living at the same time as Nimrod. Nimrod was Nimrod was the parallel to Shelah in this generation, so he would have been in Peleg's grandfather's generation, but their lives would have clearly Uh, clearly overlapped now there's some documentation for this according to the sixth book called about the heavens the latin title was de caelo by a latin writer by the name of simplicius in the sixth century a.d he developed a chronology and he noted that in 331 b.c when alexander the great had defeated darius He received 1,903 years of astronomical observations from the Chaldeans. So if you add all that together and add 1,903 to 331, this would put the founding of Babel, Babylon back approximately 2234 B.C. So that falls right in the middle of this period in Peleg's life. So if he was born in 2397 and the founding of Babylon was in uh, 2234, that would be just about here. He would have been about 100 years old. So that puts him in as an overlap. Furthermore, Porphyry, a third century anti-Christian writer, came up with the same dates for the founding of Babylon. The Byzantine chronicler, Constantinus Manassas, who died in 1187, wrote that the Egyptian state lasted 1,663 years. So if we go back from the time that Cambyses, the king of Persia, conquered Egypt in 526, then we see that Egypt is founded about 2188 B.C., Ancient Greek records put the earliest known king in Greece at about 2100 BC. So all of these 2100, 2200 BC is when you start seeing this expansion in different languages, different cultures. Egypt's founded, Babylon's founded, um, a little earlier. Uh, Egypt, Greece, Babylon are all in existence with these different, different languages. All fitting the scenario that the Scripture describes that that's when you have this scattering of the people at the Tower of Babel. One thing I want you to note here, we'll come back, we're about out of time, but we'll come back and look at this a little bit more before we get into uh, Abraham. Notice how you have the, the longevity of the first generation off the ark. Shem lives 600 year plus years. And dies. But our Paxad is born and dies before his father Shem dies. Sheila, Shem's grandson, the only person of all of Shem's descendants down to Isaac. This bottom graph is Isaac. Uh, Shem dies just ten years before Abraham does. So everybody else is outlived by Shem. These guys lived a long time. Our Paxad lived... Um, A little over 400 years. Sheila lives a little over 400 years. Eber lives a little over 400 years. But then notice with Peleg, and from that point on, their dates, their, their uh, lifespans begin to drastically shrink. Each generation gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And here we, I've plotted the graph. Which is easier to see, the one with the white background or the one with the dark background? White background. This is is a graph. What we have on the left-hand side from Adam to Noah are the lifespans of the antediluvian patriarchs. See, we have the age here starting at 100 going up to 1,000. Almost all of these patriarchs prior to the flood lived over 900 years. A couple of them lived uh, just a little bit less than 900 years. But notice what happens afterwards. There's this immediate decline. Noah lives uh, to be uh, 900-plus years of age, but Shem only lives 600 years, a drastic drop in that one generation. And then if you plot this out, it it follows a curve that you can plot here, and this is what is known uh, as an exponential decay curve. It is the same kind of curve you plot whenever you move anything from one steady state to another. For example... If you were to uh, measure the temperature of a hot cup of coffee and you were to drop a couple of big ice cubes into it and then every 30 seconds take the temperature of that uh, coffee, you would would plot out a graph that followed the same kind of curve that it would rapidly drop and then smooth out before it eventually leveled off. Now, the only way this could happen is, number one, You have, this is accurate. This is exactly what happened. Something changed in the environment after the flood, and people just couldn't live as long. And as each generation went by, it affected them, and it works itself out because it reflects a change from one state before the flood to another state after the flood. And so it reflects accurate history. Either that or Moses has his IBM computer with him up on Sinai, when he's trying to figure all this out, to make sure that all the numbers fit this exponential decay curve. And he's working all the formulas. Well, this just can't happen by chance. It's either accurate and it's true, or well, you just can't explain it. But if it, it fits a real-life uh, situation. It fits what we know about physics and geology. Okay. That brings us down to the last part of. Uh, I just want to briefly note the last part of uh, Genesis 10:26 to 30. You have 13 sons of Joktan: uh, Almaddad, Shelif, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla. I'm not going to read them all. All these are the sons of Joktan, and they all m- move into the area of um, what we would call modern Saudi Arabia. These are the father. These are the Thirteen original Arabian tribes. And many of these names have cognates of places, wells, oases, uh, whatever, down in Saudi Arabia, and they they can uh, indicate the historicity of these names. So that shows that we have groups from from, uh, Ham as well as descendants of Shem that formed the foundation for Arabic tribes. Later on, we're going to have the development of the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, other groups that come out of Abraham. But these come out of these are more distant cousins of um, of Abram that come through a great 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 uncle named Joktan. Now, when we come over to, to Shem's descendants, and we have that genealogy, I've already mentioned that it's a closed genealogy, which means there are no no gaps. And it's a straight line of descent all the way down to Nahor in verse 23, or verse 22. Sarag lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor, who is Abraham's grandfather, lived 29 years and begot Terah. And Verse 25, after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years, and he begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot three sons, Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Notice the parallelism here. Noah's genealogy in it with what? Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here's a parallel showing consistency of the author, one author in Genesis. You don't have three or four authors. Now, Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So the genealogy that we have here, when we graph it out, uh, fits this exponential decay curve and comes down to uh, Abram. Now, if we go back a few charts, we see how when Abram is born, Terah is still alive, uh, Nahor is still alive, Sarah is still alive, Ryu is still alive, uh, Peleg is still alive, But Eber, Shelah, Arphaxad, and Shem are also still alive. Everybody's still alive. So you're having a tremendous population explosion simply because the generations aren't dying off yet. They don't really begin to die off. The younger ones, Nahor, Sarag, Ryu, and Peleg, all die within about 20 or 30 years of, of Abram's birth. But the older ones, the first four generations off the ark, are all still alive and live throughout most of Abram's life. Now, this concludes our study, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is come back and summarize once again, hit some of the high points, pull it all together, because Genesis 1 through 11 becomes the foundation for every other doctrine in the Bible. Everything that Jesus taught, everything that Paul taught, everything that John taught is grounded in the histor- historical validity of Genesis 1 through 11. If you throw out Genesis 1 through 11, you have to throw out the New Testament. You cannot utilize the New Testament at all. In fact, today I was faced with a uh, sort of a theological, tough theological question a friend of mine called to ask me. And to answer it, we had to go back to Genesis 3. Over and over again, you have to go back to what happens in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. So we'll take some time to review, tie some things together, hit a couple of things that I uh, have sort of skipped over and haven't uh, touched on yet, and then uh, then we'll start Abram in two or three lessons. So first some, some review, which will orient us, set us up for our study of the life uh, of Abraham and into the second part of Genesis, with our heads bowed and our excuse me, and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study Your Word, to see how precise it is, to reflect some on uh, information from history that uh, confirms and correlates with what is revealed in Your Word. Uh, Father, we thank you that in this we, in the details, we see that You are working to bring about Your plan; that its history is not haphazard. It doesn't just uh, It's not run by chance, but that you are sovereignly in control of the events that take place in, in human history and you are working things out for your purpose. Father, we pray that this would uh, encourage us as we look at a world that is uncertain, a world where there are threats of war, threats of terrorism, threats of uncertainty, that we know that we have a God who is greater than any situation or event on earth. And we can relax and rest in you that even when things appear to be out of control to us, they are not. We, pray, we, we thank you for all these things now in Christ's name. Amen.